Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Hayden Locke, CEO of Emerson, their potash company. It's a space that not too many people understand or have looked at, but there's money to be made. So we talked to them about their project in Morocco. It's a good jurisdiction to do business in and how their business plan is looking for the rest of this year and next. They have just released a feasibility study. So we talked to them about what next. It's obviously going to take uh, a degree of financing. We ask where from, how much, and when. Enjoy the podcast. Hayden, how are you doing, sir? Very well. Good man, good man. You're at home in London. On I, or how, many, how many Zoom calls have you done today? Uh, I've done three, three today. Excellent. And uh, I've got a couple to go. Excellent. It's the new way of working. Well, like, um, if you don't mind, can you give us the one-minute overview of the company for people new to this, and then we'll pick it up from there? Absolutely. We're, we're developing a, a potash project in northern Morocco called the Hemiset Project. Uh, potash, for those who don't know, is, a, is predominantly used as an agricultural fertilizer, a source of potassium. Uh, so the project that we are looking at, the, the, the reason we think it's unique in the market is primarily around the fact that it's very low capital cost of production. Um, and we can go into detail, as much detail as you like, as to why uh, that has occurred. Uh, but really, in the global scheme of things for potash, most projects are very, very high capex and as a result, are very difficult to finance. So in the global potash context, we're very low capital cost. And as a result of our location, very competitive operating costs. Uh, so what we think is a very unique project has shown itself to be are very interesting from an economic perspective as well. Okay, fantastic. Thank you for that. Can we talk about the market, the potash market? So can people, it's not a sexy uh, sector in that not a, people, not a lot of people can wake up in the morning thinking of potash. They might be wake, thinking of gold or silver this, this uh, week, um, but not potash. So can you just talk about the size of the market? You know, who are the big buyers, you know, and you know, who are the big producers? Yeah, much to my chagrin, it's not a sexy uh, commodity and, and I think a lot of investors you know, just put it in the too hard basket to understand. It is predominantly, as I said, used to play into that global agricultural theme, which is growing population, shrinking arable land. There is no science as yet other than genetically modifying foods to increase yields without the use of fertiliser. Uh, and so as a result, it's fundamental to supporting uh, humanity over the long term. So the reason I like it is it's a very long term demand theme, which isn't as subject to the ups and downs of global economic growth as you see in other other commodities. Uh, the market size is about about 65 million tonnes. Uh, there's been a little bit of a tail off as a result of the pandemic and, uh, and the Chinese trade wars with uh, Mr. Trump, uh, but growing at a very unexciting two to three percent per annum. Um, and as a result, you know, price is relatively stable. Uh, you don't see as much whipsawing. You do see, obviously, cycles, but, uh, uh, you know, not, not too much whipsawing. In terms of the global markets, it is a very, unlike, say, iron ore, which is very focused on Asia, you know, 80, 80 plus percent of iron ore is sold into uh, Korea, Japan and China. Uh, the potash end markets are very diverse. So you have the largest market, as always, is China, but it's not the largest import market because they actually produce quite a lot of potash themselves. So they import about 7 million tonnes, maybe 8 million tonnes a year. The biggest import market for potash globally is the Brazilian market, 
um, with that huge uh, tracts of agricultural land up in the north of Brazil. Uh, and then the US market is also very large at about 10 million tonnes per annum. The European market is, is very large. Uh, and then you've got the Indian market and the Southeast Asian market, which are both uh, relatively large. I think in the future, what everybody is realising is Africa is going to be the focal point for not just uh, fertiliser demand, not just potash demand, but fertiliser demand and food production in the future. So Africa is by far the fastest growing market, uh, but starting from a very small base. Okay, so I've looked at your numbers. Obviously, you're in the lowest quartile. Um, that's great, whatever commodity you're in. If you're in the lowest quartile, you're competitive um, and you can probably make money, depending on what's happening in the, the spot price in the world. But do we need, given the prices are flat, do we need another potash company in the world at the moment? I get, I get the 2%, 2%, 3% growth component and I get the growing population and it's... It's a much better way, um, other than genetically modified food, to get more out of the soil. But do we need another one? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question. And every single, I think every single incumbent in every commodity would argue that they don't need another company coming into their territory. Uh, I think for the consumers of potash, and this is feedback that we've seen consistently through our interactions with, uh, you know, the consumers of potash. So these are large fertilizer companies who use it. Uh, they would love to have another company come in and start selling potash. Um, and that's primarily because in the truest sense of the word, potash is an oligopoly. And there's a lot of price signaling that goes on. There's a lot of controlling supply and controlling prices that goes on. Um, and so as a result, potash producers, as a general rule, make super normal profits, which is the reason why all of these big mining companies have wanted to be in the potash space to begin with. Uh, so I think from the incumbent's perspective, they'd say absolutely not. Uh, from everybody else's perspective, they'd say absolutely, we can't wait for you to start producing. Okay, so let's talk about the, um, the country that you operate in, um, Morocco. I, I've done a lot of business there, you know, been in and out of that country maybe more than 50 times. So I have a view on it. What, can you explain to people you know, what it's like working there? Because I think you, there's a page on your presentation which talks about some of the advantages. So. Maybe just run through that. There are lots of positives to working in Morocco in an African context. So I always start this with, uh, I've worked a lot throughout Africa and I've worked in a variety of different regions, uh, some more challenging than others. And I say Morocco is one of the best jurisdictions that I've operated in. Um, you know, the people are very sophisticated as a general rule. It's quite well educated. Um, they see themselves as being the gateway for Europe to Africa. And so, they tend to try to be uh, very helpful. Um, and, you know, I think one of the benefits we have in the mining industry is because it is, it's really in the early stage of its development from an outsider's perspective, we're seeing a lot of drive by the government to provide support and clarity and transparency on how the rules are applied to companies like us. So that's all really positive. And then I always caveat that by saying, it's still Africa and it still has its challenges. Uh, you know, I, I spend a lot of time stamping documents and getting things notarized. And, um, you know, that can be frustrating just from an efficiency perspective. But from an African context, it's a it's a fantastic place to be working as it currently stands. Okay. And so let's put those two things together. So you've got potash, it's Africa. When you're sitting uh, in front of, you know, brokers or financiers, what do they what, what do they know? What do they say to you? You know, what are the difficulties that you come up against and, and how do you sort of handle 
that? The first, the most difficult aspect for me is really the first hurdle where we get to potash and, you know, are they willing to even look at potash as a commodity? It's a very strange commodity in that the large potash producers don't occupy uh, the mining fund management sphere as a general rule. Mm. Um, but when you're pre-production, you are a mining risk. So you do fall under the potash mining sphere. And so while they have a detailed understanding of other commodities, there's less of a drive to have an understanding of potash. So probably the most challenging uh, is to get people to engage on potash as a commodity. I think also, uh, as you would be aware, there's been a storied track record, as there is in a lot of commodities, but particularly in potash, of projects that have come to market and are full of promise and they haven't necessarily achieved what they set out to achieve for a variety of reasons. And uh, I think there's still some, there's a, there's a long memory of that um, having occurred, which is another challenge that we have to deal with. Okay, but on the Morocco front, yeah, the, the, view, the views are growing. You know, I think it's still an early market for people to invest in, but I think people are starting to view it uh, for what it is, which is uh, an, a jurisdiction that is trying very hard to open itself up to the world. And they've been very successful in some areas, but not so successful in mine. Yeah, so I, I do like doing business in Morocco. I think it's a great country. I say well-educated um, peoples um, and it is the you know, political gateway into Europe for sure. Um, so, you know, I, I have nothing but good things to say about, about Morocco. But I, what I wanted to get at was to try and understand, you know, what's the level of understanding that, that you keep coming up against? And is that, a, you know, a barrier for you, despite having come from high fields resources, which is your background. In fact, maybe that's a nice segue to tell us a little bit about your experience before coming into um, this uh, Emerson. Sure. Well, I, I worked, um, started my career as an investment banker after studying engineering and commerce uh, and then ended up in mining private equity and about, uh, call it eight or nine years ago, moved over to the small company side of things uh, with a company called Papillon Resources, which is a gold developer in Mali in West Africa. Uh, made a great discovery, took that through the development phases that we're talking about with uh, with Emerson and uh, started construction and then was bought out by B2 Gold in Canada. Uh, turned out to be a, an amazing asset, even better than we expected. Uh, and then I moved to Highfield Resources, which is a Spanish potash developer. And that's where I really learned about the potash industry. I didn't really know very much about it when I was uh, before I got in, uh, other than that it was used for fertilizer. And I think what we were forced to do with that project was really get a thorough understanding of the market because we had a project which when it when you held it up against every other project in the world on paper didn't look as good as everything else and so we needed to understand well are we wasting our money by putting putting more money into this project uh, do we even stand a chance of being competitive when we get into production is there any point in continuing down this pathway and um, what we found was was very interesting about the potash market. So you know, that's a high level of my experience. Um, you know, I've, I'm not technical, reasonably technical. Uh, we have very good technical guys, but I pride myself on being the commercial and technical bridge uh, with a project, somebody who steps back and sees the, the broader co commercial strategy. Okay, so I mean, if you're looking at the company, it's 40 million pounds today. You've had, uh, let's call it an erratic share price for the last three years, yeah, some real highs. Um, I mean, gen okay, the general trend is up, uh, but it's some real highs and lows. And you know, we, we, what were some of those moments? What was what was the market's expectations of you? Because as you say, it's a when you, at this point you're a regular mining operation. 
when you get into production, you're kind of you fall into the kind of chemicals um, area. So it it each papillon. I love the fact that it was papillon. It's kind of like a butterfly effect here, really, isn't there? You know, you're you're at that stage of, of growth at the moment where you're having to prove yourself as miners, and then that that has to be all changed. So, can you talk to me about what the current team's capability is in terms of that mining experience? Because that's what that's what you're going to have to prove to the market. That's right, and I think that's probably the next phase of development is very much in the next phase of strategic development. And I've said this previously. Potentially, I'm not the right person to take us into construction and then into uh, production. I'm certainly valuable in some circumstances just through historical knowledge of the potash market and uh, you know strategy development and the fact that I've got a fairly big network in the fertilizer industry now. Uh, but I think if we were to ask, okay, what's your key risk in the next phase of development? It really is execution and execution uh, is down to getting the right people in the right jobs. And so, you know, we, we are a little bit chicken and egg situation where you need the financing to have the confidence to build out that team. And so, uh, but the intention is very much to get the right people in the right roles. Um, one of the benefits we do have is the chairman of the company, Mark Connolly, uh, who I worked with at Papillon Resources, is a veteran of the mining industry and a veteran of the operational side. And he's been involved in the building of multiple projects. Uh, so he has a huge network of people that could potentially get involved when the time is right, uh, but it's just about getting to the time. But what about today? To the time being right. What about today, Hayden? You know, who's on the team which is actually driving this thing? Because you know, you don't have much. I know you've raised a little bit of money recently. So there's not a lot of money, but there's enough money in the kitty to get you to where you need to be. Because the the running costs are quite low, uh, looking at your numbers. Um, but who on the team has been charged with doing? what uh, with that money? I mean, what, what are you trying to achieve during this phase, this kind of growth phase within the, 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 this mining phase that you're in? So the next phase, what we've now delivered the feasibility study, and I would say we are a small company. And so everything, uh, I am integrally involved in everything that goes on in the company. You know, I, it's not like I'm just sitting there and people are reporting back to me. Uh, I am involved in the weekly calls with the project team. Um, you know, I've been having a lot of engagement with the engineers, our external engineers and independent engineering firm while we're doing that work. We do have a very capable team that do all the various pieces, bits and pieces, but at the end of the day, we all sit together on calls, including me. And so realistically, it's me that's driving uh, all of those various discussions that's going forward. Um, we have, uh, in terms of our project management side, we have a, a very experienced team, a gentleman named Nick Edmonds is our senior project director. Uh, he used to run Parsons Brinkerhoff uh, in Africa in their projects team, a lot of underground mining experience. And then uh, the project director below him is uh, Jakob Zmuda. They've worked together extensively uh, and they're a very strong team on the technical side. Um, in country, we're led by Lassen Alabain, who's got a lot of experience in Moroccan mining. Uh, you know, he, he was uh, at Casbah Minerals and was involved in the permitting of the Casbah Minerals project. Uh, so we're very fortunate to have him. On the geological side, uh, we have Enrico Sands, who used to be in the uh, Rio Tinto uh, industrial minerals team focusing on potash. So he's our senior geologist and he has a number of geologists working below him. And then from a corporate and strategic perspective, it's myself and Phil Cleggett, who worked with me at Highfield Resources. Uh, so we have together a shared six years uh, in the potash industry and 
you know, he and I manage the financing process for uh, for Highfield Resources. So we've got that financing covered off and we managed a lot of the strategic and corporate discussions around uh, Emerson. So as we currently stand, we have a very good mix for what we are, uh, a lot of understanding. Uh, the next phase of development, we certainly need to skill up. There's no doubt about that. Okay, okay, that's very much. Thanks, thanks for being so honest. Um, Let's, we'll get on to the, 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 you've got a feasibility study that's just come out. So we need to, I want to talk about the numbers there, but before we do, I want to just understand what is it that you set out to do? Because like I said, it's a small company, it's 40, it's 40 million bucks, right? You know, um, not a lot of people. Um, and in the context of all the other Potash players, you're, you're very small, right? So what is it that you set out to try to build? And where do you think you are today? And where, where do you see this thing going? I mean, I, you know, you, you said you may or may not be the right guy to you know, lead this going forward, but for shareholders today, what, what is the story that you're telling them about what you're going to achieve whilst you, are, whilst you decide whether or not you know, you're the guy to go forward with this company? And how are you going to get there? So if I look at the long, long-term goal, um, you know, my understanding of the potash space or in the fertilizer space in general if you want to play in the global multi-nutrient fertilizer space of the n the nitrogen the phosphorus and the potassium uh, portions of that global macronutrient uh, sort of uh, market uh, nitrogen is relatively easy to enter so it's just a function of having cheap gas and the money to build the plant phosphates or phosphorus is also relatively easy to enter there's plenty of phosphate projects around that could be financed and brought into production. By far the most difficult portion of the NPK blend to get your hands on and to, you know, to get a new mine uh, for is the potassium. And that is mainly down to the capital cost of production. So when I started this, I had it in my mind, well, first of all, this is a very interesting project that we think has the potential to be low capital cost. And, and as a result of its location, we think it has the potential to be bottom quartile costs. That by itself is interesting enough for me to say, we should spend some more money on that to understand whether or not there is an investment case to spend more money and build a, a small potash producing business. Um, now that we've got that information, the goal is very much around, okay, well, once we're in production, what's the next step? And the obvious thing is to try and build a mid-tier multi-nutrient fertilizer company. Um, and so some of the groups that we're talking to about potential financing would help us achieve that uh, that help us achieve that goal. They would provide the nitrogen. We would then provide the potash, which is by far the most strategically difficult to access. And then if we look at the uh, phosphorus, there's a, there's a couple of really good projects that we like the look of uh, that re recognize that our project is a very rare commodity in the global fertilizer space. So that's the big long-term goal. Uh, if I focus down just on short-term for me right now, my goal was always deliver a feasibility study, a very rigorous analysis of the project that confirms or or refutes what we had always thought, which is this is a low capex, high margin, potentially potash project. And if we're wrong, we won't spend any more money on it. We'll move on. Life's too short to you know just carry on spending money on something that doesn't work. Now that we've got a feasibility study that says that, okay, the next phase for me is deliver uh, the next financing strategy that gets us one step closer to being shovel ready Okay, so give me some of the feasibility study numbers and then we'll talk about financing, how you get that financed. So headline CapEx uh, for the potash only project has come down by about 5% from the scoping study. 
Uh, so we're talking $387 million, including a contingency on that. We have also included a SALT project in the actual uh, feasibility study itself, which adds another $23 million. So we're talking a total capital cost of $410 million. That will produce uh, peak production, 810,000, average life of mine, 740-ish thousand tonnes of potash over a 19-year mine life. Uh, and a million tonnes a year of de-icing quality salt that can be sold into the US de-icing salt market. Um, again, that capital cost number is is among the lowest capital intensity projects in the cap, in the potash space that you will find. Uh, the only one that's really even comparable is, is high field resources. And that is very much because of some similarities between those two projects, which is why I uh, chose to join uh, Emerson in the first place. Um, from an operating cost perspective, costs have gone up a little bit from the scoping study. So we're talking about $10 a tonne more uh, on a delivered cost basis to the to our target markets. Uh, but that still puts us very firmly in the bottom quartile of all-in sustaining delivered costs to our target markets. Um, and then if you include the by byproduct credit for the salt, well, we're, we're virtually the lowest cost producer in the world to our target markets. So again, a very strong competitive position uh, on the operating cost side. Probably the biggest weakness of this project is it's not 5 million tonnes a year. So it's does, it just doesn't have that, uh, you know, BHP or potash corp scale. But I would argue, what having said what I've said about the potash market, I'd argue you probably don't want to be doing that because if you're doing that, you're going to have a serious impact on the global market and um, you, you will eventually impact your own returns. You'll cannibalise your own returns. Okay. So let's, let's talk about um, your marketing plans. So you're obviously sitting in North Africa. You've talked about North Africa being, sorry, Africa being sort of the, the next uh, market. Um, and I know in your presentation, you talk about costs of you know, shipping over, over to Brazil, which is a very big market uh, indeed. But what are your marketing plans should you get to the point of being able to uh, get this thing financed? Um, so we are not going to build an internal marketing team. So part of what we will do, uh, and this is mostly from my perspective on you, you either build your own operating team internally and uh, you hire all those people. And for me, that's fraught with risk for a first time company. Uh, the other way to do it is to go to a trader which helps. So there are lots of fertilizer traders who would love to get their hands on potash and they can build you an internal uh, effectively an internal marketing team and they'll take a dollar per tonne cost on that. So we will use a trading group. Um, there's a couple that we're very close with that we had a shared history with who we really like. And it's a very, it's very much an open book. Okay, they'll tell us exactly the price. They'll show us all the costs of, of the uh, transport logistics and they make a margin on top of what we get. That's the intention in terms of the business side of it. In terms of where we're going to sell, uh, going back to, uh, you know, how are our operating costs competitive? Mostly because we're focusing on markets that are very close to us. We have a huge transport and logistics advantage. We are to mine gate a relatively high cost producer, but as a result of our location, we're competitive delivered to our markets. So we'll only focus on markets where we have that transport and logistics advantage. And that is really everything on that Atlantic corridor. So Brazilian market, the US market, although that's probably a bit competitive for us, Caribbean, uh, Northwest Europe, and then obviously Africa, predominantly led by Morocco. So Morocco is one of the fastest growing potash uh, regions in the world, driven by this very large phosphate producer, OCP. 
So we see that as a very logical market for us. But the key is never to be uh, too too concentrated on one customer so that you can always uh, trade yourself and find a better price if necessary. Uh, so we've got to have that optionality. So we'll focus on uh, Morocco, Brazilian market, Caribbean market, and Northwest Europe. Okay. So you're happy with the feasibility numbers. You're kind of clear about your vision for how this company grows. You haven't got much cash in the kitty at the moment, so you're going to need to, at some point, say, and I, I suggest, but suspect, go and raise some capital. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, we've got, we've got uh, about £1.2 million left. And as you say, we run a very lean team. So there's only me in London. Um, and then we have uh, a couple of guys. Everyone's spread around, but most of our team is in Morocco. Um, our overheads are very low. We don't need to raise any money, certainly for the next 12 months, uh, probably longer. And what we're really shooting for now is the feasibility study is a catalyst for the discussions with those various strategic partners. Now, there's, there's no guarantee that we're going to get a strategic partner over the line, but the conversations that we're having thus far have been pretty good and we're, we're seeing a lot of interest in the project. And what they're saying is we need, to, we need to review that feasibility study in detail in order to make a decision to go to the next step. And, and what, is it, what would that deal look like? Or what would those types of deals look like? What are you hoping for? Well, the ideal would be to, to find a big enough partner who could come in and write the whole equity check for us. And, um, you know, in the, in the fertiliser game globally, uh, the companies are typically very, very large. I mean, really, really large companies. And so for them, $200 million uh, is a relatively small investment. Um, but the, the other side of that is they're typically not miners. And so they are very cautious about understanding the risks. Some of them are being burnt by investments and you can only have to look at when the potash prices ran to 2000 uh, in 2009 to see there are a number of big fertilizer companies that made investments and, and lost their shirt so they're they're cautious uh and we plan to work our way through that look how does it look i don't know at this stage would they want to take a staged uh, structured approach to the investment most probably so in my mind it would probably be a small investment upstart uh, uh, up front to take us through that next phase of development and then once we hit a milestone another investment and so on and so forth until we get to a point where we're ready to construct and build the mine okay so i think people are obviously excited of looking at the share price recovery people are excited about the feasibility study um do you think that will sustain is there is there another quick milestone meaningful milestone to come yeah so the i think the milestones for delivery my goal for this year is to deliver and i, I mean i'm surprised that we've only got si about six months left in the year which is scary uh my goals for the rest of this year are to deliver the fully permitted mine so get ourselves to a point where we are uh, have finished the environmental social impact assessment to ifc standards and we've started all of that process around converting to a mining permit uh, and then in parallel with that we're going to be working really hard, focused on these financing discussions. So that is the goal in an ideal world and setting myself aggressive uh, objectives. I would like to be in a position where I am close to having both of those items sewn up by the end of the year or in the early part of next year. And there will be associated news flow with that. Some discussions are more advanced than others and we'll be running pretty hard to try and move all of those discussions concurrently to get an idea of what the best outcome is for our shareholders. And so how would, it, how would an all equity deal work, you know, for your company? Because obviously at 40 million bucks, someone comes in with 200 million bucks. I mean, how are you constructing 
the detail there so it benefits your current shareholders? Well, the way we would approach it is, and clearly having a a market cap at 40 million pounds doesn't help with the discussions with, uh, you know, potential strategics coming in who say, well, your value is 40 million pounds. And our obvious counter to that is, well, we we know that it's worth a lot more than that. And for whatever reason, the market is pricing us in a different way. I'm not going to say it's wrong because, you know, the the market will do what it will do. Uh, the way to get around that is to have a sh- more structured approach where uh, they invest a small amount to start with and then uh, at the next milestone they invest more but it's at a slightly higher valuation uh, and gradually moving up to a point where they're fully invested and own a whatever percentage of the project now how much of that project that's the that's the 60 million dollar question uh, is you know I, i've always said i'm kind of less worried about the f- ability to finance the project i think the project is good enough on its merits to attract some significant financing. The question is how much of the company can, or how much of the project can we retain through that financing discussion? And that'll be the, the I guess, the thing that we're working hardest for is to try and retain as much as possible. Recognizing that time is also the enemy. So it may get to a point where we have what perceived to be a bad deal, okay? Maybe we own less than 50% of the project, uh, but given that time is a real enemy for our investors, it may be that that's the, the right decision to make. So we'll be constantly reassessing what we've got on the table, what's real, do we think it de-risks us from a financing perspective and making decisions based on what we see at that point in time. So, I mean, I'm fascinated, but this, this is the dance, right? This is, this is the moment where you know, people with experience of having been in this situation or negotiated these situations can make a difference you know, because it's not uncommon. You know, this, there's a lot of people in the same same boat here, where the person with the money is in control, and you're in control of, you know, what you're in control of. You know, how how do you ensure the best possible outcome? And, and maybe you don't want to give away the the game here, but you're going to have to be quite cute because you need their money. You don't have any money. Um, and there's a lot of comp- com- competitors out there um, ask also trying to raise some money. So, you know, h- how do you win? Well, I mean, this is uh, investment banking 101 is uh, to never just have one option. So it's all about having multiple options. And, um, you know, you are constantly, you know, I don't think we're going to be cute. I'm going to be honest with everybody in the dealings with them that you know, we are talking to other people and, uh we are trying to get the best outcome for our shareholders, and you know, if people want to be involved, uh, they will have to sharpen their pencil, so to speak. Um, that's how we lay it out in our mind. Whether or not that plays out in that way remains to be seen. There's a lot of things that have to, uh, you know, happen in order for you to get to a position where you've got good competitive tension. But but the benefit we have here is we do have multiple parties in a variety of different senses who we could possibly do something with and who have a reason to want to do something on this. Uh, we need to get them all through the due diligence process and get them comfortable with the project and make sure that you know all of those questions that they need to ask to give them comfort are answered. Uh, but I'm hopeful that we'll, we'll be able to time all of that so that we're, we're having not one discussion, but two discussion and we have the ability to have a, have a, dis- a, a, you know, a choice at the end of it. Okay. Well, Hayden, th- thanks very much for running through that. Um, I, I mean, I like it. I really do. Uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a nice operation. You, you, the, the numbers look great. Um, it's a question of you've got to deliver some stuff before the end of the year. You know that. 
the good news is it's not going to cost you too much um, to to get there. But at that point, I guess you'll you'll know more, uh, and you should be that a little bit more attractive to potential strategic partners. So uh, I wish you well with that one. But do stay in touch with us and let us know you know how things are progressing. Um, we'd love to love to keep up with you know this story um, as you get to that end point. Great to finally come on. So thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.